hello, sanctuary. It's nice, hello. The responsive 11 o'clock crowd, that's really nice. Uh, it's really, really, really nice to see all of you guys. Uh, I, I've said at the previous services that, um, you know, when I came out of seminary, I had a whole bunch of sort of options in front of me as to um, which church we could go and work for. And uh, we could not have picked a better church to have spent the first three years of our sort of ministry life at than Sanctuary. Um, this is a really great place to be. I remember right before we were preparing to leave, uh, Ed let me preach one last time, uh, sort of a last hurrah, and uh, I got up and I remember saying to the crowd that was there that uh, when we came out here, I had this idea that good pastors made good churches, and so it was the leadership that makes a church amazing, which has some truth in it. Um, but I remember saying that what the three years out here with you guys had taught me was that it's at least as true, if not more true, that good churches make good pastors. Um, and this was good uh, space and time for us to be in uh, with you all, that you made us in a very real way. And uh, even though we only spent three years here, Wisconsin's my sort of real geographical home, uh, this feels like home to us when we come back. And I have a feeling it'll always feel like home. I mean, even now, four years later, we left in 2009, I'll write these blog posts here and there talking about things that we're doing and, you know, challenges that we're facing and asking for prayer and all that stuff. And it's always the Tulsa people are the first people to respond saying, and they'll say things like this, we've been praying for you every day since you left here. So that's outrageous. (laughs) People don't do that, you know, but you guys do. And so thank you for that. It just means a whole heck of a lot. Uh, Denver's going well. You should know uh, we had three kids when we left. And uh, so Ethan is seven, Gabe is six, Bella is four, and they're doing well. And we added a fourth, Liam, who just turned one back in July. So four kids, and that's enough of that. And, um, <laughs> and then the church is doing well, too. We're, um, uh, we're about, we'll tell you more about it in a second, but we're, um, we're about uh, 350 or so people and a couple services and just doing well and enjoying life. So thank you for your prayers and thoughts. And those of you that, when we were in dire straits, went online and made a generous donation to Bloom Church, that also meant a lot to us. So thank you so much for that. Uh, I'm supposed to, before I start the message tonight, celebrate some good things that you guys are kind of doing on the missional front uh, here at Sanctuary. So last Christmas, the Advent Conspiracy, which we actually started doing kind of when I was around here, the Advent Conspiracy is this idea that uh, God has come, he's invaded time and space and history and the person of Jesus to save and deliver and to make life on planet Earth better. And so the church, as a way of worshiping into that and expressing that, ought to do something along those lines for the sake of the world around Advent. So this Advent conspiracy is about reaching out to the world during Advent. And so you all did the bicycle initiative over Advent. 100% of all the funds that you donated uh, were going to go to providing heavy-duty bicycles for church planting pastors in rural parts of Africa, making it possible for them to commute more easily from church and school and all the things that they have to do. So you, Sanctuary, raised during that little initiative $8,412.05. So that is a good bit of money. And what that translates into is 42 bikes being used to plant 210 churches in Uganda and West Africa. And those churches will hopefully reach 17,850 people over the next five years. So that's a lot of people, and that's a good amount of money, and you're doing good work with that. So way to go, sanctuary. You should give yourselves a hand. All right. I heard that students were back in town this weekend, and so I wanted to kind of come up with something that 
uh, would be helpful for students, people just starting out in their lives. And the more I was preparing, the more I thought, actually, these are just sort of the perennial issues of life. And so I'm going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, the whole thing this morning. But before we turn there, if you have Bibles, you can start flipping there. But before we do all of that, let's just pause for a moment and um, remember in whose presence we are. You might even, if you're so inclined, just take a deep breath or two, slow yourself down. No need to be in a hurry. He is before all things, the Apostle Paul says, and in him all things are held together. And in him we live and move and have our being. And from him and through him and to him are all things. You are in this place, God. Every particle, every atom, every molecule, every bit of energy, all of it is sustained by your gracious hand. Were it not for your hand, our very bodies would be torn to pieces. Reality would rip apart. And so your love, the psalmist says that the unfailing love of Yahweh is filling the earth. You're perpetually pouring your love into this world that you have created. You're pouring yourself into it. In fact, you've made this place to be a place that's a habitation of your glory. So we are asking that in these moments that we have together, as the ancient text is open and words are shared and songs are sung, that we would know ourselves in you in a way that's more profound than we've experienced to this point. You who call yourself the Alpha and the Omega, we yield to your gracious presence in these moments. Help us move from clenched fists to open hands, receiving all things from you and giving them back to you as praise and glory. Make it so, we pray, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That everybody said, amen. Ecclesiastes. The Hebrew title of the book of Ecclesiastes is Kohelet. Can I hear you say Kohelet? Kohelet comes from this Hebrew word kahal, basically means like to gather. And so what we're to imagine in this book, Ecclesiastes, is that this teacher has a group of students, so people like us, in front of him, and he has something very important that he wants to communicate to every Buddy. Now, another important Hebrew word that sort of defines this word is the Hebrew word havel. And I hear you say, hear you say havel. Yeah. Havel means something like the old translations translated it as vanity, okay? And so you'd read in the old translations, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. And that's an okay way to translate that. Um, but I think that there's probably a better way to get at it. Some of the newer translations, maybe in the last 30 or 50 years or so, have gone with meaningless. So it's meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And that's also pretty good. But Havel is actually a sort of word picture, and the best way to communicate it is uh, Havel is something like this. So Havel is that. Smoke, vapor, mist. It's something. It certainly is something. 
It's just really difficult to get your hands around. So Havel is mist, it's vapor. And what the teacher wants to do is he wants to take all of life as we know it, all of life as we live it, all of life as we understand it, and deconstruct it in such a way that it creates space for us to live life in a more profound and deep way. So in a very real way, what Kohelet, the teacher, is doing is he's taking us to the wisdom beyond wisdom. For this book is part of the wisdom literature of scripture, among which uh, there's books like Proverbs, you know? So when you read through Proverbs, you're reading, it's like listening to your mom talk to you, you know? It's like, eat your vegetables and don't run with the wrong crowd and make sure to save up, you know, a decent amount of money and all that stuff. And it's like, okay, that's fine. And then there's Ecclesiastes, that takes like everything that we know and it like pushes it to the brink of what it's capable of holding. And then it adds just a little bit more pressure until it cracks open in order to help us see things that we might not normally see. Ecclesiastes chapter one and verse one. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, Vapor, vapor, smoke, smoke, havel, havel, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, it's utter vapor, everything is just vapor, mist, smoke, it's nothing. What does a man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and it hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and then it turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, and yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things, I love this, are wearisome, more than one can say. Church is a good place to be encouraged on a Sunday morning. (laughs) The eye never has enough of seeing, or the ear it's full of hearing. What has been done will be done again. What has been will be again and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which anyone can say, look, this is something new? No. It was here before our time. It was here already long ago. There's no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Now I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that's done under heaven. What a heavy burden it is God has laid on men. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun, and all of them are vapor. They're chasing after wind. For what is twisted cannot be straightened, and what is lacking can't even be counted. I thought to myself, look, I've grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge, and then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also to madness and folly, and I found that this too, it's a chasing after the wind. For which with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) There it is. That's good. Kohelet, the teacher, deconstructs three ideas in front of our eyes, ideas that a lot of us build our lives around that make our lives feel like they're meaningful in the moment and then ultimately make those lives meaningless. The first thing that he deconstructs is the idea that achievement as such has anything in it to offer us as a thing upon which we can build our lives. And so he says that achievement is Havel. Verse three, what does a man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go. The earth rises, the earth sets, the wind keeps blowing, the sun keeps rising and setting, and everything eventually is going to dirt. No matter what we do, everything is going to be deconstructed. Everything is going to dust. Everything is going to collapse. And the earth is just 
just going to keep going on. My wife and I got into this show a little while back. It's on Discovery Channel or the Learning Channel or something like that. Uh, the show is called After People. Have any seen After People? It's usually guys that stay up too late or into After People. And so this show, I got a couple nuts. The show, the premise of the show was what happens on planet Earth after people are gone. So like, let's say we all just caught some crazy virus and everybody died tomorrow. What would, you know, uh, life be like on Tuesday and Wednesday and beyond that? And so it sort of tries to extrapolate out what would happen. And like one year later after people are gone, there's some serious rot that started to set into buildings and roads are starting to decay a little bit. And then five years later, it's looking worse. And 10 years later, it's looking worse. And like 100 years into it, the cities that we have built, that we've invested so much time and so much money and so much effort in are like utterly unrecognizable in form. And 200 years after it, all of these scientists posited, you wouldn't even be able to see the cities to be leveled to the ground by rain and weather and soil and sediment and dirt and the wind and all of that just takes, like everything that we have built, Mother Nature just goes, and kicks it over. I was watching another show one time and they were talking about uh, the relative time that we human beings have been on earth in terms of geological history. So the scientists say that uh, the earth is uh, like 4.32 billion years old or something like that, right? So they said, if you take that 4.32 billion years and you stretch it out, your arm represents that length of time. If you took a fingernail clippers and clipped your fingernail and had that little bit, that would represent all of the time that we human beings have been on planet earth in terms of geological history. So that's like this, okay, right here. That's like, right here, we could pass this around a little object lesson. The, the rise and fall of the great empires, you know? The building of the great businesses, songs and poetry and books and achievements of every kind that you and I have accomplished, we human beings. All of it fits on this little thing in terms of geological history. It's just nothing. And Kohelet says, and then to make it all worse, it's not just nothing. It's like less than nothing. It's vapor. It's vapor. All of it is vapor. Archaeologists recently discovered an old Egyptian city that had sunk into the heart of the sea 1,200 years ago. The city is called Heraklion. And they go underwater. It's, under the, it's in the Mediterranean Sea. And there's all of these just remarkable human achievements. You know, there's, there's pottery and there's statues and all this beautiful stuff. And as they're exploring it, they're positing that the city was like this major port city. I mean, just a huge city. And you didn't know about Heraklion until this moment. And apparently it was like a big deal in the day. And even more, the archaeologist said that the reason that it's underwater is that it collapsed under its own weight. Vapor, vapor. Achievement is vapor. I remember watching the NBA Finals a couple years ago. The great LeBron James had just won his first NBA title, and they're interviewing him after the game. They said, LeBron, what's going on in your mind right now? Like, what are you thinking? He's like, the game is over for like five minutes, you know? And he goes, all I can think of is we're legends now. We're legends now. You're a legend. You're a legend. Did any of you care? No. And if you did care, you care less now than you did then. We're legends now. But this is what we do. We like make up these words to allay our anxiety about our place in the universe and to add insult to injury as a way of betraying his own insecurity, I think. The interviewer continues on with him. So, so what's next for you guys? You know, and he said, oh, we just have to go win another one. <laughs> it's like you have been an NBA champion for five minutes. 
Can't you enjoy it? What is the matter with you? I've got to go win another one, and then another one, and then another one. Why? Because it's vapor. It's vapor. All of it is vapor, and we know it in our bones. We just don't have the good sense to behave in alternative ways. I remember reading an article that Relevant Magazine put out recently about the 10 people in Christianity who have changed everything. (laughs) And I read the article, and it was interesting. And then a couple weeks later, I was thinking about it, and I thought, you know... There's two problems with it. One, nobody changes everything. Some people change some things, and that's about the best we're going to do in life. And number two, I can only remember three of the names. (laughs) Achievement is vapor. It's not a good way to live your life. And so the teacher deconstructs achievement. The next thing that he deconstructs is the idea that uniqueness, our own specialness, is something that we can build our lives on to give them meaning. He says that what has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again, and there is nothing new. Everybody say nothing new. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which anyone can say, look, this is something new? No. Here already, long ago, here before our time, there's no remembrance of men of old, all those really special people. And even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. He's like, uniqueness is havel, it's vapor, it's nothing. Now, this idea of our own specialness, our uniqueness, has been risen to the level of sacred dogma in our culture, okay? And so you're likely, if you go to grade school for the first time in 2013, because we're all just so insecure, you know, about our place in the universe, so you're likely to go to school in first grade or whenever and see banners emblazoned across the hallway with words like this, you are an individual, And the meaning that we're supposed to draw from this is, I mean, what a redundant statement to make. You are an individual. What is the point of even saying that? They say that there are 7 billion people on planet Earth right now, 7 billion people. Do you know how big a billion is? Do you know what was happening 1 billion minutes ago? The Roman Empire was in the height of its power and Christianity was just being born. That's a a single billion minutes ago. A billion is like a lot. So there are seven billion people on planet Earth and then the anthropologists and the sociologists will tell us that there have been 13 billion people probably that have ever lived on planet Earth. 13 billion people. So you and I represent one thirteen billionth of the entire beauty and uniqueness and power and awesomeness and specialness and intelligence of all of humanity. One thirteen billionth. It's vapor. It's vapor. It's all vapor. And we say things in our society because we just can't accept that reality. So we say things that just... If you didn't belong to our culture, it'd sound utterly ridiculous to you. But because you belong to the culture, you just kind of go along with it. So we say things in our culture like, do you know that no two snowflakes are exactly alike? (laughs) Right? But have you ever seen a snowflake? Because they're all pretty much the same. Six sides, crystals, right? And it melts. 
really, really fast. Think about those of you that are old enough to have done something like this. Think about the last time that you went to like a high school reunion or a college reunion or something like that, and you had those people in your class who were just like the junk. I mean, just like the awesomest people in your class, and beautiful and popular and all this stuff. And then time goes on and life kind of happens to you. And what happens? All of the hard edges and the particulars and the uniquenesses that just make up everybody, it all just kind of gets blunted and everybody just sorts of blend. They blend into this mass of humanity. Like life has a way of doing that. And so Kohelet, the teacher, takes up the idea of uniqueness as a thing that we can build our lives on and he mocks it. It's vapor, it's vapor. There is nothing new. And to build your life on that idea is foolishness in the uttermost. The last thing that he deconstructs for us is the idea that knowledge, our ability to understand, make sense of everything that's happening, has something in it to offer us in life. He says that knowledge is Havel. He says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I devoted myself to study and explore by wisdom all that's done under heaven. And what a heavy burden it is God has laid on men. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. They're all meaningless, they're vapor. And then he says this, what is twisted can't be straightened. What is lacking in life and our ability to understand it, it can't even be counted. I thought to myself, look, I've grown an increase in wisdom. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also madness and folly, and I learned that it too is a madness. It's folly. It's chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes more sorrow, the more knowledge, the more grief. He's like, I tried to make sense of it all, and I found out that the things in life that were twisted, the conundrums and the riddles that were twisted, I couldn't straighten them out. And the things that were lacking in my ability to make sense of the universe, I couldn't even count them up. The physicists will tell you that when they begin to observe light now as they're testing it and working with it, that light sometimes behaves like a particle and then sometimes it behaves like a wave. What? What does that even mean? Or there's some subatomic matter now that when they observe it, like it behaves one way when they're not really observing it. And then when they begin to like test it and pay attention to it, all of a sudden it does something else. Like, has personality, you know? Subatomic matter has, like, person. What is twisted can't be straightened. What is lacking can't be counted. There's no way for us as human beings to come up with a comprehensive understanding of how it all works, to come up with that golden key of knowledge that just makes sense of everything. When I came out of seminary, I was so, I was so dogmatically certain about all of the things that the church in North America needed and all of its problems. I just had this certainty about it, you know? And so it was a few core ideas that I was working with, and I thought, for sure, like, these ideas are the ideas, you know? And so I came out here, and we tried some stuff, and some of you were like lab rats for some of these ideas, you know? And so we tried, like, some of these ideas, and I realized that they worked a little, a, a little bit, and so then what you need to do is you modify the idea a little bit, you know? And so then you go back to it and you kind of use it now, the idea, I think this fits reality now. And so you try and test it for a little while and it kind of works a little bit. And then you realize that it needs some serious modifications. And so you build some new ideas kind of around it and you test that out for a while and you have some good impact with it and some nice success with it. And then you realize that that idea still needs a little bit more modification. So you keep like modifying the ideas and all of a sudden you come to this moment where like you realize that if your key, that your, this key of knowledge that you've developed matches reality, then reality is a horrible place. It's misshapen and ugly and incoherent in the uttermost. You know, there's like, what is twisted can't be straightened. What is lacking can't be counted. Think about all the times in your life that you've sat in church services 
and you had that moment where you were listening to the message and you were like, oh, that's it. That's the key of knowledge. That's the thing that explains it all. Now the mystery of my existence has been made known to me. Now all of my relationships are going to get straightened out. My finances are going to get straightened out and everything's just straightened out. Now I'm going to understand the Bible better. And you use the key to open the door. And when you pull the door open, you realize that there is another locked door back there. And you sit in more church services and you get more keys and you keep opening doors and there's more locked doors and that's just the way that it goes. What is twisted can't be straightened. What is lacking can't be counted. I think about my adult years now. I've spent, I'm a journaler, like many of you might journal as a way of processing what's going on in your life and just trying to make sense of things. And I journal and I journal and I journal. I've got bookshelves filled with journals and these journals, these journals, I'm not kidding, and these journals, these attempts to figure out what is going on in my life and how do I make sense of it, you know, and I can't tell you how many times, like my journals are like, like the, the amount of times that this has happened to me, they're like shells scattered on the seashore, empty promises. I'd have these moments where I just figured it out. Oh, that's it. That's it. I have like that insight, you know, and I try the insight out, the insight into my own soul and my relationships and things that were going on and my situation, trying to understand my time and place and history. And I'd come to that like moment of insight or revelation or whatever, and then I'd put it into motion and it would work a little bit. And I realized that it just needed more. It's more, more, writing, 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 writing. Ah, try it. Ah, it doesn't quite work. What is twisted can't be straightened. What is lacking can't be counted. Not by us. And so Kohelet takes these ideas. The teacher takes these ideas. Achievement, uniqueness, knowledge. And he deconstructs them. And he goes, after all of that is gone, what do you have left? And so there was one teacher who did this for us, deconstructed everything. And then there was another teacher who said this, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. All of you who have been living in the vapor, all of you who have been living with achievement as the thing that's gonna define your life, all of you who have been carrying around the heavy burden of your own attempt at uniqueness, being special, standing out, all of you who have been carrying around the heavy burden of having to make sense of it all, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus seems to think that underneath all of the vapor, there is a core of reality that actually lights up the vapor and gives it meaning and gives it sense and it gives it purpose. And it's nothing other than his yoke, his self, the connection to him. When I left high school, uh, came, I was an ORU student here from 99 to 2003. And uh, so I grew up in this small town, like Pastor Ed said, 18,000 people in the community. The church that we were part of was maybe five or 600 people. And um, so I was like, uh, the way that I described it is I was like, a, in, in retrospect, I was like a medium-sized fish in a small bowl. And so you start thinking that you're maybe a really big fish when you're in a small bowl, you know? And so I kind of had this, I, when I left for ORU, I did have this sense, a really deep sense of calling. I still have, you know, a sense of calling that God wants, wanted to use my life and all of that, and um, the problem was I had so many people, and this is nobody's fault, but I had so many people around me when I was a kid affirming that sense of calling and affirming, you know, God has his hand in your life and he really wants to use you and all of this, that by the time 1999 rolled around and I was 18 years old and went off to ORU, I sincerely thought without any hesitation 
that I was quite possibly God's greatest gift to humanity since the Son of Man himself walked on planet Earth. You know, like, just give me some time. Wait and see. This is going to be good. And if you have a narcissistic personality trajectory like that, ORU is not a great place to go. As you sit in chapel and they have a banner on the back, Oral had God speak to him at some point, you know, before he built the university, and it's this whole thing. You're going to raise up the students to hear my voice. They're going to go where my light is dim and my voice is heard small or whatever, da 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 and then the last lines. Their work will exceed yours. And in this, I am well pleased. You know, like you go to ORU with like this expectation that we're going to do better than Oral Roberts. <laughs> Probably. And so I had that. And I was a business student at ORU, and I got married after my freshman year, and we were just in the thick of life, you know, trying to pay bills and make grades and all that stuff, and I still had this sense of calling, the sense of my own uniqueness and the achievements that I was going to make and all of that stuff, you know, I had that in my heart, and yet I'm just like, I'm just trying to survive, you know, get good grades, doing my accounting classes, and it was really quite vexing to me to see how a lot of my classmates, it seemed like God was using them more than he was using me, so they were going off on mission trips and seeing people healed, or they were starting this, that, and the other thing, or they were getting asked to speak or lead worship at these various places, and I was just sitting there in chapel, and I secretly held out the hope, I kid you not, that, you know, chapel would be uh, Wednesdays and Fridays or whatever, and I'd sit there, and I secretly had this hope or this expectation, knowing God's deep call on my life, you know, that like the, the preacher, the speaker at chapel would uh, one day just out of the blue look back at the row that I was sitting on and go, you, young man, come to the front. Say what you have to say. You know, I'd open my mouth and it'd just be this like stream of wisdom and God would just use me in that way. And so I had this and so God didn't do that. Um, and I was in the middle of it, just really actually quite depressed about it all and thinking, you know, there's this idea that if you have faith, you know, really put your confidence in God that you're going to go on and do great things for God. That's kind of the ORU mantra. And then there were, uh, you know, there were some really clever people about that time that were kind of changing that formula. And like, maybe it's not so much do you have faith to succeed and do great things for God, but do you have faith to fail? So do you have faith to put yourself out on a limb, take the big risk for God, and maybe it works and maybe it doesn't work, because if you don't have faith to fail, then maybe you don't really have faith at all. And so I was running one day, I was up near 81st and Lewis, actually, I was jogging, really hot, it's always hot here, and I'm jogging, so a heat stroke or something, and so I'm jogging. And I'm, in my mind, I'm wrestling, like, faith to succeed, faith to fail, faith to succeed, faith to fail. Like, what do I have? I don't even know what I have. Like, God, where am I? And like, what the freak are you doing with my life, you know? <laughs> and so I'm getting ready to come up near 91st, and uh, I remember hearing God speak to me in a really intimate and profound way. Andrew, maybe it's not, do you have faith to succeed? And maybe it's not, do you have faith to fail? But maybe it's, do you have faith to be obscure? Completely and totally obscure. So like, what if none of the great dreams that you have ever really came to pass? And what if your narcissism never culminated in the way that you want it to culminate? What if, you know, what if nobody ever really knew your name? What if you never really wrote the book, you know, that just changed everything? What if? What if you never made it to the cover of a magazine? What if nobody was ever writing up interesting articles about all the amazing stuff that you were doing? What if? What if what, if what I called you to was to a life of complete obscurity with me? Would that be enough 
for you. And it was a little bit grievous to me at the time to realize that the answer in my heart was not yes. It was, I don't know. Because it's easy for us to make, in the midst of the vapor, we make the vapor the thing. It's God and the vapor. But then sometimes it becomes God and the vapor. God and achievement. God and my uniqueness. God and my ability to understand all things. We make the calculus a God and calculus. And the God and calculus always fails. So I think that what God is trying to do in us is he's trying to strip us of our dependence on the vapor as a thing that defines our lives and makes them meaningful and lead us into the depths of knowing him because that's the only thing that makes life meaningful. I think that this is the deep import, for instance, of a book like Job. That after Job has lost everything, not only does he lose his kids and his possessions and all of that, God sort of strips him down, but then he even loses more profoundly. He loses his sense of self-identity as a righteous man, but that collapses to the ground. And he gets to the point where he stands there in his raw, naked, existential, unadorned self before God and comes to this point and utters these memorable words, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Or Paul perhaps says it better when he says, I count everything loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake, he says, I've lost everything. I think that we've read that, those of us that have been in this for a long time, we've read that so many times, it's just, it's like, I've lost everything. Think about what he says. I've lost everything. I lost it all. I lost my whole sense of self-identity and my background and everything that gave my life a sense of purpose and meaning. I lost it all. God stripped me to the bone in order to lead me back to the core of reality, Christ Jesus himself. I think that that is what God is trying to do in us. Three years ago, we had been in Denver for, I don't know, nine months or so. And, uh, you know, I remember when we moved out there, Bloom is such a strange community. Um, you know, I used to tell people, they would ask, when we first moved out there, it was like 60 or 70 people, and people from this community, you know, would ask, okay, so what's Bloom like? Tell us what Bloom is like. You know, give us a sense of the community. And for a while, my thing was, I would tell people, well, it's kind of like a glorified youth group, you know? And then uh, I realized that that was an insult to a lot of really good youth groups that I knew. <laughs> it's like, it's maybe a youth group. Uh, it might be a bad youth group, you know? And so, but I had this idea that, um, that when I got out there, you know, I finished up here and I was 27. So, okay, God, you know, like I've been kind of laying in the weeds long enough. Like this is like the moment to shine, you know? And so I had this idea that we would get out there and uh, I might not be the greatest preacher that's ever lived, but in my own head, I'm not a slouch, you know. And then we're going out there, and my friend Michael Gunger of the Gunger Band, you know, Grammy-nominated, award-winning, I mean, like, really popular people, you know. So I had this idea that, like, the intersection between Michael's awesomeness and Andrew's awesomeness was just going to, like, create this church out of the dust, you know. And so, um, and, like, maybe not right away, like, maybe not in the first few weeks, but maybe, like, eight weeks into it, we'll certainly have, like, I don't know, 500 people coming to the church, and we'll be paying all kinds of bills, and they're just, you know, and just, we'll all live happy ever after. And so the weeks and the months went on, and to use a Pastor Ed-ism, uh, they were staying away by the thousands. And like, no, but like, really, like, it was really, really quite vexing. And we would have, we met on Sunday nights, we still meet on Sunday nights, and so we'd have weeks where like, the attendance went up to 72 people, 
you know, and then like the next week you'll be like 65 and you're all depressed, you know, and the next week it's like 80 people want to go back down and just like did this for a long time. And, and it was so weird too, preaching to Bloom, it's this very like hipster community, you know, so I'd be preaching on Sunday nights and just like giving it, you know, and like half the people would be, uh, you know, giving themselves hemp tattoos and the other half would be knitting or doing art or whatever. And so like it could just, it was, a, it was just vexing. And so I would go home on Sunday nights I would go home on Sunday nights, and I'd just, be to- I'd just be so tormented by the complete lack of success of this endeavor that we were in the middle, you know, in the middle of. And, uh, and I did the thing that you should not do. So the family would go to bed, and I'm not on Twitter anymore, but I was on Twitter back, at, at, back in the day. And the people that I followed on Twitter, stupidly, were, like, really successful people, like really successful pastors and authors. And, like, just, I don't know why I did that. You know, just this, like, self uh, flagellating, self-wounding, like, I don't know, impulse or something. And so I'd get on Twitter and I'd be on there. I was feeling, I just remember this night so clearly, you know, I'd be on there late, late at night and going through Twitter and the pastors on there would say the most insulting and demeaning and degrading things to me. They would say things like, they would say things like, praise God, we just opened our 10th campus today and 500 people came to know Jesus. And I would be so angry at them, you know? Shut up. Just shut up with your flipping campuses and your stupid people coming to Jesus. We don't care. None of us care. It sucks. It's stupid. And our thing is cool. It is cool. You should come and visit. It's really great, you know? And so I'd comfort myself with my anger. And so one night I was, I mean, I must have been up one or two in the morning and I'm on Twitter and I just decided that was a bad idea. So I closed the computer and I sat there and I heard the voice of God again. And uh, so Andrew, stop, time out, like big time out here before you get too far ahead of yourself with all this business thought experiment. What if you didn't have the internet and you didn't have you know, modern media and all the stuff that you use to stay connected to the big wide world out there. And you didn't have that. So you don't know about Pastor Awesome down there in Texas. And you don't know about that really, you know, uh, Mr. Awesome writer over there who's like just changing everything. And you can't be envious of the blogger who's doing better than you. And you just don't have any of that, okay? So you don't have any of that mess to deal with. What if all you had was your wife and your kids, whom you love, and this community that I've given you, which you do love, and your deep sense of integrity about the work that you're doing, your effort, your love, your prayer, your devotion. What if all you had was just the little garden that I've given you, and you didn't get to know about anybody else's achievement or anybody else's uniqueness or anybody else's great insights into what's going on in the church in North America, as though this is a thing that can be known. You just didn't know about any of that. All you knew was the people in front of you and the moment I've given you and the love that you have in the moment. Would that be enough for you? Could you be happy? And this time, I was really delighted to sense that the answer that bubbled up from the center of myself was, yeah. Yeah, I could. Because when we're in the vapor, we get so caught up with the vapor, with the achievement, the uniqueness, and the knowledge, and we get so caught up with everybody else's vapor, how their vapor's doing. But it's all just vapor. It's all just vapor. 
Because Pastor Awesome one year ago is not Pastor Awesome anymore. Just not. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. Empires rise and empires fall. Churches rise and churches fall. Books are read and then they're forgotten. Songs are made and then they're forgotten. Poems are written and then they're forgotten. Blogs are written and then they're forgotten. Everything gets forgotten. The core question in life is are we locked into the essence of reality? God himself. Because if we're not, the vapor destroys us. I think that this is perhaps the reason that the book that follows hard on the heels of Ecclesiastes and the wisdom literature is the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, which the church has traditionally interpreted as this great sort of love poetry between Christ and the church. Because maybe, just maybe, after the teacher, Koholet, annihilates everything, everything is shown to be vapor and mist, maybe after all of that is cleared away, all you have left is love. And the question is, is love enough? Let's stand. Lord God, Almighty Father, before whom all hearts are open, all thoughts are known, and all secrets, no secret is hid. We are a people very much preoccupied with making meaning for ourselves in the vapor, and that's a bad idea. And meanwhile, in the midst of it, you call to us, you invite us, and you give us the gift of yourself in the midst of the vapor. And the strange thing is that as we connect with you in the midst of the vapor, it actually makes the vapor worthwhile. Because achievement is fun, and it's a gift that you've given us. And beauty is to be enjoyed. It's a gift that you've given us. Uniqueness is to be enjoyed. It's a gift that you've given us. Knowledge is to be embraced and put to good use. It's a gift that you've given us. It's just that you can't make a life on that. Life is only found when we make it and when we make our home in the triune God, in you. So we ask in this moment, may we find our home in you. May we stop building our lives on the vapor. May we cease chasing the wind. And may instead, may we find ourselves at home in the moments that you've given us, with you, with the people that are around us, with love and joy and gladness and celebration for the good things that you give, knowing that they're vapor, they're vapor, they're all vapor. The food that we eat and the wine that we drink and the friendships that we have and the achievements, it is all vapor, but it's also a gift of yours to us. And so as we're locked in with you, it gives life meaning. So may we find ourselves home with you, God, we pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Did you enjoy that?